So what the Amish can teach us about community? Fascinating article here. For the past 100 years, the Amish have resisted new technological advancements like television and the automobile. But during the same time, they've welcomed modern medicine to treat serious diseases, which do not impede their sense of community. Why? Jameson Westmore is an engineer and social engineer at the Arizona State University School for the Future of Innovation in Society. He has studied the Amish intensively and their perspective on technology. He commented recently in an interview, The reason the Amish rejected television is because it is a one-way conduit to bring another society into their living rooms. And they want to maintain the society as they have created it. And the automobile as well. As soon as you have a car, your ability to leave your local community becomes significantly easier. You no longer have to rely on your neighbor for eggs when you run out. You can literally take half an hour and run to the store. In a horse and buggy, when you don't have your own chickens, that's a half-day process, unless you're Dan. I asked one Amish person why they didn't use automobiles. He simply smiled and turned to me and said, Look what they did to your society. And I asked, what do you mean? Well, do you know your neighbor? Do you know the names of your neighbors? And at that time, I had to admit a fact that I didn't. And that's an article back in 2018. The Amish understand a life-changing truth about technology the rest of us don't. Now, here's the deal. I I read that article before I started my sermon. And it, it kind of, well, it spoke to me a little bit. Like, there's some interesting things in there that I didn't really know about Amish. And I've, I've actually worked with some Amish uh, back in Ohio doing building way back in the days. And so I, I, I read it one way and I heard it one way. And I thought about that intriguing question they asked there, how well do you know your neighbors? And then I wrote this message. And after I wrote this message, I read the article and heard it a little differently. And I saw the other side of the coin. What can the Amish teach us about community? Well, they ask that question, how well do you know your neighbor? And that's a great question. How well do we know our neighbors? I've got pretty good neighbors, but I don't know them like I probably should. But notice, I put that down as question number two, because today there's a greater question the Bible raises. Actually, before it asks us, how well do you know your neighbor? The Bible actually asks this question, who is my neighbor? And I thought about that, and so I understand the the article and the arguments they make about why they made the choices they did, but I wonder, how well do they they know the people that are their neighbors that aren't next door to them? And how much of an impact have they had on society in their little community? So you could could really get into a debate on that, uh, both sides of the coin on that. I just thought it was fascinating to stop and ask this question. We'll ask today, who is my neighbor? And uh, yeah, I need to know my neighbors, next door to me, but who is my neighbor? And the Bible defines that for us, of course, as we know, in a pretty powerful way. We're in a new series today, starting a new series, More to the Story. And it's kind of built a little bit on this premise, it's kind of what's, what's behind the series a little bit. The Bible is 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 40 different authors over 4,000 years. I think I've, I've mentioned this before. It's fascinating when you think about the Bible. And yet what's amazing about the Bible is the Bible has one central theme and one main character. The Bible is, I like to say the Bible is a portrait of Christ and it's telling the story of redemption, God's redemptive plan. And that's what the Bible is. And, and it's just amazing how the Bible does that and we don't often appreciate that. 
I was thinking about this reality that when you look at the Bible, it begins telling us a story in Genesis and is telling us the same story 7,000 years later in Revelations. It tells us the, the, the same story in the great flood of Noah as it does in the great exodus with Moses, as it does in the great battle between David and Goliath, as it does when Christ goes to the cross hundreds of years later. Exact same story is being told. And you, you just can't manufacture that without divine intervention. That you can take all these authors and all these years and all these books and chapters and tell the same story. Now, there's a lot of buzz today. I hear a lot of buzz and talk. In fact, I put this on, the, uh, on uh, Facebook and somebody actually commented on the Robinson page. Well, I think the books that aren't in the Bible are more interesting. And you hear a lot about that today, right? There's a lot of intrigue about what about the books that were left out of the Bible? Like there's a lot of gospel, like the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Judas. I don't know what gospels they are. I can't remember. There's different names for these gospels and people lament that. And it's like, well, what's the deal with those books that weren't included in the, in the Bible? Well, here's the deal. Everything that is in the Bible, did you know it was written by like 95 AD? Like that was the last book was Revelations around 95 AD. Everything was written before then and everything is like a firsthand account. All the books that they lament that were left out of the Bible all come in about 200 to 300 A.D., and they're all second and third-hand accounts. Like, they heard it from a friend, who heard it from a friend, who heard it from a friend, you've been, you know, no. But you know how it is, right? They, 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 um, they don't get this first-hand knowledge. And so there's something interesting about the books that have been left out of the Bible for a reason, and the books in the Bible were pretty much established by 100 A.D. These are the books of the church. And they were just basically codified and acknowledged at a couple hundred years later as, yeah, those are the books that we've always said are the Bible. These other books, they're not a part of the Bible. And the other thing, those books that aren't in the Bible, what's interesting, they contradict the books that are in the Bible. They have a different message. They, they, they don't necessarily jive with this main character and central theme. So I think that's interesting. Today, we're going to start this series, More to the Story, by looking at the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan is one of these stories that really, to a degree, has been co-opted by the world, and yet it has a much deeper meaning. I was thinking about that. We get excited sometimes. You know, if some famous person quotes a Bible verse at an awards show, we're like, woo, oh, they quoted the Bible, yeah. You know, it's great. And it doesn't matter much about how they're living their life. It's just they quoted the Bible. And, and I think sometimes the world latches onto stories like David and Goliath or the Good Samaritan, and we're like all excited that, oh, they're, they're telling a Bible story. And we don't realize, well, they're not really telling it correctly or they're misappropriating it or they're using it for their own agenda. And we're going to look at that in this series, kind of some of these stories. And the Good Samaritan is one of them that's been co-opted by the world. And the meaning to the story is actually much deeper than probably we are realized ever realized. And so we're going to jump in here today and talk about the Good Samaritan. And we're going to ask the question, could there possibly be more to the story? Here's our big idea. Jesus puts the gospel into everyday language. Jesus walked the earth 33 years, or not 30, for 33 years, 2,000 years ago. And, uh, and he put the gospel into everyday language. He put it in ways that people could understand it. And he was giving people the gospel actually before the cross and, and resurrection, and they didn't even know they were getting it. But he put it in there so we could look back and we could say, oh, he was pointing to the gospel. 
He was pointing to the cross. He was pointing to the empty tomb. How amazing is that? So we're going to start here, and we're going to start with the context. Because here's the, the deal. When you think about the world telling the story of the Good Samaritan, they leave out the beginning verses here in the context. They don't give you the context to why this story is being told, which is fascinating. And so behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, well, you shall love the Lord with all your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. And so we start out here. The first thing we see in the context is the motivation. This lawyer comes up, and the motivation is he's going to put Jesus to the test. And so he has this question for him. And this is not new. Jesus was always being put to the test and they were always asking him questions to, to, to kind of trip him up, the religious establishment was. And, uh, but he gets this question. Now, the, the lawyer might have been sincerely trying to figure out what's this guy's, orth, how orthodox is this guy? How will he handle a simple question like this? But the point is when you follow Jesus' response to him, you see that he probably had a little bit of self-righteous um, piety or superiority to him. And Jesus is going to deal with that. So here's the, the motivation, right? I'm going to test him a minute, ask him this question, and then we go to the core question, which is, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And just catch that, right? So the story of the Good Samaritan begins with a question about eternal life. Like before this is some great social justice uh, story for our world today, it's a story about eternal life. How do I have eternal life, and how does that connect up with being a good neighbor? It seems kind of odd, right? Well, we'll walk through it, and we'll see exactly what's going on. Now, again, this man's question it could be a sincere search for assurance of eternal life, or his question could be more nefarious, or it could be somewhere in the middle. It's hard to say for sure, but Jesus' answer will give us some insight as to how sincere this guy probably wasn't with his question, and that takes us to the brilliant misdirection. The brilliant misdirection. So Jesus says to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? I think this is pretty fascinating. Probably caught the guy off guard. He asks him a question, and Jesus does this all the time. Jesus would get asked a question to trip him up. He would turn around, and he'd, he'd say, well, what do, you, what do you say about this? He'd put a question back on them. He would uh, kind of silence them in the moment. So this could be a tad bit sarcastic here. It's like, well, you're a lawyer. You should know. Tell me what's in the law. And we get a sense here of the man's motivations in this question by the way Jesus responds. Let me show you what I mean. I'm going to walk you through a handful of passages, and there are more I could have put on this list. But basically, every time Jesus addresses eternal life in the Scripture, he addresses it in a certain way. Watch what he does here as I run through a handful of passages. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have... You can help me out, okay? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to? Oh, you guys are good. All right. Truly, truly, John 5, 24, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has. All right. John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. John 10, 28, I will give them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In John 17, 3, and this is that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Every time Jesus is asked about eternal life, he says, well, you're looking at him. I'm eternal life. You have eternal life by believing in me, by receiving me, by believing that God sent me. Except, in this case, with this lawyer. You want to know about eternal life? He says, well, what does the law say? You're a lawyer. And so it's interesting to me, why does Jesus take the lawyer back to the law? Of all the ways he could have answered that, I think if the man was sincerely just looking for, how do I have eternal life? He would have said, me, just know me. I'm eternal life. He would have told him that, but he didn't tell him that, did he? So evidently there's something more going on as this lawyer is putting Jesus to the test. I don't think he's merely seeking to find eternal life. He's testing Jesus. He might have wanted to see, if I ask him this question, how will he answer me? How orthodox is he? Will he go back to the law? And Jesus maybe passed his test to it momentarily anyway. It's like, wow, he used the law to answer my question. So the other thing we can kind of detect from this, though, is that I believe this man, I believe this man actually thinks he's got the law down. Well, yeah, the law, I, I, I know how to love God with everything I've got. I know how to love my neighbor as myself. Well, okay, I think I do. Who's my neighbor? And that's kind of where the, question, the, 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 whole, con, the whole context goes next. Verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And I think maybe in this moment, he was a little taken aback, didn't expect Jesus' response, and maybe felt a little twinge of conviction. Like, he thinks he's got the whole law thing down. He doesn't even ask about, how do I love God? He's like, well, I got, I got that thing down, but who is my neighbor again? Pretty interesting. And this is interesting because this was not how this was supposed to go. He was supposed to learn something about Jesus, and here is Jesus exposing something about him. Like, oh, maybe I don't love like I should love. Could that be? And again, time and time again, Jesus does this. He, just, he, gets, he gets tested. He gets asked a question to trip him up, and he has the ability, so in tune with the Spirit, he has the ability to flip it back around and back the other person into the corner. It's an amazing, amazing thing. So we have the personal motivation, the core question, the brilliant misdirection, and the self-justification. Who is my neighbor? Self-justification. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And we'll get an answer to that as we go forward this morning. See, more than just how well do I know my next door neighbor, who is my neighbor actually is a bigger question. Today's big idea, Jesus puts the gospel into everyday language. He will do that for this lawyer. He'll do that for you and me as we move on to the moral of the story. Here here we go, John 10, 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levi, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. What an amazing, what an amazing story. And which of these three, he asked the question then, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do Likewise, you go and do likewise. So here's the moral of the story. And let me just suffice this by saying, understand that the Bible is really not about, mainly about morality. It's not, the, the, the thrust of the Bible stories are not about our moral behavior. We don't have a behavior problem. We have a life and death problem. We have a gospel problem. We have a, I need to be made alive in Christ problem before we have a behavior problem. Not that we shouldn't be moral people, and we certainly should be moral people, and the Bible shows us and teaches that as well. But that's not the main thrust of the Bible or any of these stories, and this story as we'll see as we go through it. But let's start here with the moral of the story. Three things we can point out about a good Samaritan, right? A good Samaritan sees the needs around him. And he tells the story, okay, a man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And anybody listening to the story at that point is like, "Uh uh-oh, I hope it wasn't late at night. I hope he wasn't traveling alone because when you went down, there, there was a name for this, this, this road, this highway, whatever it was. It was the way of blood or the road of blood because it was notorious there that, for people to be attacked and, and left for dead like this guy. This was not an unusual situation. And so a good Samaritan will see the needs around them and we see that as the story begins. Now we're introduced to three people here, the priest, right? Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so the priest, uh, coming from Jerusalem, he may have just well been at the temple doing his duties. He could be walking home. He could be thinking, he, he, he saw him, right? He saw him, but he knew enough to cross the street so he didn't really see him. I don't want to look too close at him. I don't, I don't want to feel too much compassion or too much, I don't want to feel too much conviction in my heart. I'll just try not to look at him and go on my way. I'm busy. And besides, I'm a priest and his thought might have been, I can't touch anything unclean. So I certainly can't touch this wounded man. And he went on his way. And then we're introduced to the Levite. Likewise, a Levite, a Levite also, he worked in the temple. He was of the same tribe of the, uh, of the priest. They did the, both of these men are involved in, you know, the, the spiritual authority in the church, the spiritual leadership of the church. You could say the Levite maybe is the worship leader. So the pastor comes by and goes around him, and the Levite does the exact same thing. He might have been thinking, hey, I got a family at home. I can't stop and help this guy. I might get beat up. And so he, whatever his excuse, however they justified themselves, right, as, this, as, as Jesus talk to this lawyer however they justified themselves they went around totally avoiding this man and I think the need to cross the street communicates a bit of a conviction there a bit of a I don't want to get too close because I'll feel convicted I'll feel maybe some compassion maybe I'll feel the need to stop and and then we're introduced to the Samaritan but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion on him he came to where he was He's going to stoop down. He's going to help this man. He's going to come in for a better look. And by taking a closer look, he can better assess the situation. And then we see that the Good Samaritan feels compassion for the hurting. Because they get close enough to see, to look, to analyze. 
And then he felt compassion for this one that's hurting. The, the, the priest and Levite didn't feel any compassion because they didn't let themselves feel any compassion because they didn't get close enough to the situation. They knew enough to, hey, just avoid it. Then we won't feel guilty and we won't feel, we just didn't see anything. So the Samaritan, as he journeyed, he had compassion on this one that is laying on the ground. And this is really interesting. This is how Jesus is often described, right? Like in Mark 6.34, Jesus' ministry, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. And even after he, he, would, he would minister to people and, and they would be hungry after he preached to them for a, a couple of hours, you know, it's like he would have compassion on them because they were hungry. Compassion and Jesus went hand in hand. In fact, we're told in Colossians 3.12 to put on Christ, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. I mean, like we talk about our new creation clothes, right? And in your closet, in your new creation closet of new creation clothes, you have a compassionate heart, so put it on. Start wearing it. That, that, that's who you are in Christ. Just put it on and just use it. And so the Good Samaritan here has compassion, and then the Good Samaritan acts. He even sacrifices on behalf of those in need. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And so he doesn't just have compassion, he doesn't just see, he has compassion and then he acts. He steps up and he gets involved in this man's life and even sacrifices. There's four ways he sacrificed. He sacrificed his energy. He puts this man on his donkey, <clears throat> on his beast, most likely a donkey. He lets this man ride the donkey to the inn as he walks along. And then he sacrificed his time because we see the next day he's still at the inn with this guy. He probably had things to do, places to be, meetings to attend, and yet, no, here he is sacrificing his time for this one who needed his attention. He sacrificed his money. As he leaves the inn, he leaves him with, with two denarii, which would have been enough for probably a week, two, three weeks, probably at the inn. And he tells, them, tells the innkeeper, I'm coming back, I want to come back. You know, if there's anything left, if there's any more expenses, I'll cover it. It's kind of like he left behind an extra credit card. So just put it all on the tab here. I'll pay the credit card when, he comes, when I come back. And then, most importantly, I think he sacrificed his reputation. Because this is the part of the story we haven't even touched on yet. That he's helping out a Samaritan. The Samaritan is helping out a Jew. And you, you all know, right? From By now, you all know Jews and Samaritans were like the biggest of enemies. The greatest of enemies. They, they didn't get along. They didn't get along whatsoever. And so this would do this Samaritan no favors by helping out a Jew. It just wouldn't. Which kind of shows us how sincere this Samaritan was. He was sincere. Why? Because, well, he's, he's doing something that's so costly to him, even to his reputation. He's not doing this for self-notoriety, for self-promotion, because he wouldn't get much good promotion out of this he would be, it would, it would cost him when it came to his reputation. You know, to be honest today, we can be bombarded with all kinds of needs, right? You can go on Facebook and you can find every week, find multiple, you know, GoFundMe accounts, you know, you can give to this cause and that cause and the next cause. And there are all kinds of ways we can get involved today. And, and the reality is we can't help everybody. Let's just be honest, we can't. We can burn ourselves out today watching the news and being depressed with all the problems in the world. We can't help everybody, but we can help somebody. 
every now and then, the person that God puts in our path that we walk, we walk across and, and we don't have to step over them or walk around them, but we can sacrifice, we can get involved, and we can help them. What's amazing about this all, though, is he's answering this guy's question, who is my neighbor? Well, who's his neighbor? <laughs> How about that? Jesus is saying that to love your neighbor is actually to love your greatest enemy. Whoa. Well, that, that, that just added, you know, we always hear this, you know, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, okay. Well, it's more like love your enemy. Love the person you hate the most as yourself. See, it's, it's one thing to love the people that we like or to love the people that are like us. That's one thing. Or to love the people that don't annoy us too much. But to love the person that we hate. <laughs> well, that's an oxymoron in itself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, and your neighbor is actually your greatest enemy. And the other thing that I thought in this that I never, never put this together before, but in a sense, Jesus is kind of saying, you know what? Jews and Gentiles, you're neighbors. You know? You Jews, those Gentiles are your neighbors, so don't look down on them too much. Both of you get along. There's another neighbor in the story we'll see here too that is pretty fascinating to consider as we go forward. But here's the point. This is where the story co-opted by the world ends. This is it. The moral of the story, you know? And if we all just were good Samaritans, the entire world would be a better place. And it would be. The world would be a better place. But you know, the Bible is not about making this world a better place. The Bible is all about us getting people into an eternal relationship with Christ. So when this world ends, when this age ends, we're with Christ for eternity. That's what the Bible's all about. It's not about just our, our behavior improvement. It's about our life and death problem. So today's big idea, Jesus puts the gospel into everyday language and he's going to continually do that for us as we look, as we move from the moral of the story to the more of the story. Because there's more to this story. This is the part of the story the world doesn't recognize or understand because well, it goes into territory they don't really want to think about or deal with. First lesson we see here is that Jesus was showing this lawyer that he had missed the gospel. That's the first lesson. He's showing this lawyer that he had missed the gospel. That's why we ask this question, why, why does he go back, to, why does he take the lawyer back to the law of all the things? Why did he just say, eternal life, it's found in me? Well, Because the law was kind of being an impediment to this man finding Christ and having a relationship with God. There's a very significant line here. Did I put it back on the screen? I didn't. Here's what it says. This is the line, verse 28. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's a very significant line. Did you hear? Did you hear what he said in that line? You probably didn't. It's easy to miss it. The man says, let's follow this out. The man says, how do I have eternal life? Jesus says, well, what does the law say? The man answers him. Well, the law says love God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. And what does Jesus say? You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. What's he saying to the man with that sentence? Right, do this and you will live. Because <laughs> this man thinks he's doing it. This man thinks he's got it. Like, I love God. Well, who's my neighbor? You know, maybe, I'd, maybe I could work on that one, but he thinks he's got it down. And Jesus says to him, do this and you will live. Like, you're not doing this as well as you think you're doing this. And that's the point. Now, here's the question. Here's the question, though. 
Why is this man not doing it? Why is this man not loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength? Why is this, why is this man not loving his neighbor as himself? Why? Anybody? What? Because you can't. It's impossible. It's impossible. That's the whole point of it. So this man comes here, and I, well, yeah, how, how do I have a relate, eternal life? And it's like, you just keep the law, and you, you love God this way, and you love your neighbor that way, and, and he's like, go do that. Because he knows he can't do it. Apart from the gospel, you can't do that. Apart from the gospel, nobody can love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, we'll prove it in a moment. And you can't love your neighbor as yourself. It's impossible to do it. And so this man is missing the gospel because he thinks in his own good efforts that he can work his way to God. You can't work your way to God. So the story's all about the gospel. Note, note that the, the, this goes on, though. This, let's see the gospel kind of emerge out of this story. It's fascinating. The wounded man was left half dead. I thought that was interesting. Like half dead. You know, like you ever woke up, gone to work on a Monday, and said, boy, I feel half dead. That's a good slang term. You think they used that as slang back 2,000 years ago? I don't know. I doubt they did. I doubt that was slang to them. But there's two words here in the Greek. One means half, one means dead. And what, what blew me away is every translation I looked at, and I, don't, I didn't look at every translation, but I looked at a lot of translations, easy to read, literal, they all said half dead. Everybody said the same thing. He's half dead. And I thought, well, that's crazy because you can't be half dead, can you, right? That's impossible. Maybe it's not. Look at this passage here in Ephesians 2. And you were dead, speaking about us before we knew Christ. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, once, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So here's a guy that's dead, but he's walking. How does that work? Sounds like a TV show. Among whom we all once lived. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here he says, you and I, we all once lived, and were by nature children of wrath. Like we were dead, but we were living. Pretty fascinating. Finally, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see how you can maybe be half dead? Like there's people all around us every day that are half dead. Oh, they're alive physically, but they're dead spiritually. And this man leaned by the side of the road, he's actually not dead physically, is he? He's going to be taken to the inn. He's going to be tended to. He's going to get out of that bed in probably a few weeks and go on his way. But he symbolizes the individual who is dead spiritually because that's what this is ultimately about. That's ultimately what this story is. It's about the gospel. And note here that Paul says, once we trust Christ as Savior, we are then fully alive. Like we are alive physically and we are alive spiritually. Ooh, that's a great feeling, right? That's a great feeling. It's not so good. And, and the world won't admit this, but the people all around us that are alive physically and are dead spiritually, it's not so great being the walking dead. It's really not. I mean, they may say it is, and they don't want to be honest sometimes, but when you don't have a meaning and a purpose and joy and hope in your life, man, that's not a good thing. Wow.
So the true problem here is spiritual death. This man by the side of the road has been beaten up and uh, he, is, he, he has been beaten up by Satan, sin, and the world. And we go to the priest and the Levites in the story. The priest kind of represents the law and the Levites kind of represent the prophets and they did nothing for this man. They couldn't save this man. Now does the law and the prophets, do they have value? They certainly have value. But they couldn't save anyone. Only Christ can save us. Only the gospel can save us. Look at Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. This is a verse the lawyer needed to hear. Now we know that the law is good. Paul said the law is great if one uses it lawfully. Now, like we said last week, if, if you let Satan take the law and use it to accuse you as a believer who's been justified, well, that's not good. But, verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and, and whoever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which, with which I have been entrusted. So, really, the gospel or the law, I should say, is for those who are lost in sin to say, hey, you need a Savior. And the lawyer needed the law to point him to what? Christ and the gospel. He thought, yeah, I can keep the law. Yeah, the law can make me holy. I'm doing a pretty good job with the law. No, you, you really aren't. And you need to know that. You need to be aware of that. So the law and the prophets, the priest and the Levite, do nothing to help this man. And again, they're valuable. The prophets are valuable. The prophecies of Scripture validate the authenticity of our Bible. They tell us that what was written 700 years ago came true. Certainly. But they can't save us. They can warn us, but can't save us. The law can point us to the cross, but it can't save us. Pretty powerful. So, if the priest represents the law and the Levite represents the prophet's do you, know who, do you know who the Samaritan is by now? The good Samaritan is Jesus. He's the good Samaritan. Yeah, you're, you get it? You're not the good Samaritan. You're not. Fact is, you could never be good enough to be the good Samaritan on your own. Jesus is the one who loved his neighbors that were his enemies. Jesus is the one who loved the Father enough to sacrifice his life for him. And the symbolism throughout this story is amazing that points us to Jesus as the Good Samaritan. First, he came down. This, this Samaritan, it, it points out that he came down and uses this Greek word to show he came down and he got into this man's life. Jesus came down from heaven to earth. Second, the good Samaritan gets off his beast. I most likely think that would be a donkey. What a great picture that Jesus comes in to Passion Week, Palm Sunday, comes riding in on his donkey and gets off of his donkey and goes where? To the cross. To be the good Samaritan. To do what the law couldn't do. He had compassion. Repeatedly throughout Scripture, the Bible tells us that Jesus was described by his compassion. And then look at this. So, so think about this. It talks about he had two things. He had, the, he had the wine and he had the oil. What's the wine represent? Well, that's, his, that's always been his blood. 
It's the blood that provides forgiveness from the cross. He goes to the cross and forgives our sins with His blood. That's represented in the wine. What's the oil represent? Any guesses? How about the Holy Spirit that gives us life, like the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead? The empty tomb. And in this story, you have both the cross and the empty tomb. You have the the wine, which is the blood, the oil, which is the Holy Spirit that gives life. And he tends to this man who is half dead because he is dead in his sins spiritually. How amazing. And Jesus made the most amazing sacrifice, right? He is the one who sacrificed. He is the one who put his old reputation on the line in a way that nobody else ever has or ever will. In fact, here's what it says in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, this is the King James Version, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, or he emptied himself, our translation normally says. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Jesus didn't care about his reputation when he came to earth. He came to what? Isaiah 50. 3.12, and he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He was put on a cross as a common criminal. And that was his reputation. And that's why he came. Because he was the good Samaritan who sacrificed what no one else would sacrifice to save you and me from our sins. And lastly, where does he go? He takes this man to the inn. And what does he say when he goes and leaves the man at the inn? What does he say? I will return. I'm telling you, we sang it this morning, Christ is going to return. Hallelujah, he's going to come back. Yeah. Isn't it great? And isn't it great that Jesus is the good Samaritan? And I'll never be good enough to be the good Samaritan apart from the gospel. You know, I was just thinking about this too. We mentioned this lately, you know, this whole thing of election and this whole thing of limited atonement. And Jesus only died for certain people. And I thought, how do you reconcile that again with this story? If Jesus is the good Samaritan and everyone is the neighbor, how did Jesus not come and die for everyone? He did. We don't get to pick and choose our neighbors. We don't get to pick and choose our neighbors. Jesus didn't pick and choose his. Well, we technically can pick and choose who we live next to, I guess, but no, not in the sense of who is my neighbor. Again, Jesus puts the gospel into everyday language. Let's wrap up with a handful of brief applications here, right? Like you can never justify yourself before a holy God, so stop trying. Oh, we're good at justifying ourselves all the time, right? We justify our attitudes. We justify our emotions. We justify our actions and our responses. And we justify, oh, so many things in our life. But honestly, when it comes to our relationship with the Holy God, just know two things, that if you have been saved, you don't need to justify yourself. And if you haven't been saved, you can't justify yourself before a Holy God. You can never justify yourself. You can never be good enough before a holy God. People often wonder, you know, well, I mean, why why is God's standard for heaven so high? Like, why, why is it if you have just a little bit of sin, you can't get into heaven? Because the minute one sin gets into heaven, heaven ain't heaven anymore. Heaven's earth again. And you know what sin does? It just spreads. 
So you have to be holy and righteous and pure to get into heaven and you'll never be good enough on your own. That only happens through Christ. We need to know that. And you know what's really fascinating? When he goes to the, um, when he leaves the man there at the inn and he says, you know what? When I come back, I'm, I'm going to cover all his expenses. That's what Christ does for you and me. Like all of our sins from now until the day we're caught away. We saw that in our last series, right? That, that he's taking care of everything from now until he returns. There's not a sin laid to my charge. Second thing here, before I am a good Samaritan, I need to see myself as the wounded victim. Like if you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, you are that wounded victim. You are half dead. You are laying by the side of the road, beaten up by sin and Satan and the world. You need to know that. Before I'm ever a good Samaritan in this world, I am a wounded victim. And I was thinking about this truth, you know. A lot of people today, they feel like that wounded victim. They feel hurting and they feel like, you know, maybe the solution is to try to be a good Samaritan, to try to do good deeds, to try to do good things that will win appeasement with God. And, and that's exactly the wrong attitude. The only thing that's going to bring you what you're looking for is to come before God and say, I'm not good enough. I've been beat up by this world. I need a Savior. I need, I need you to be my Savior. Again, you can never be good enough. And the title of the Good Samaritan says it all because the Good Samaritan is Jesus. I love this one, what the law demands, the gospel produces. Just know this, what the law demands, the gospel produces. So here's the deal. We said, right, that no one can love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and no one can love their neighbor, their enemy, as themselves apart from the gospel. Because here's what happens, right? I can't go through all the verses, and we're not going to put them all up here, but therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you are saved, when the good Samaritan takes you up off the ground and takes you to the end and heals you, makes you righteous and holy and that, you become a new creation in Christ. Like, here's one thing, Timothy. Paul wrote to Timothy, the aim of our charge, he said, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul told Timothy, the goal is that you would love with a pure heart. Let me just tell you, you wouldn't be told to love with a pure heart if you didn't have a pure heart. God gave you a pure heart, made you a new creation, gave you a pure heart, gave you a compassionate heart. We saw that earlier. You know what else he gave you? He gave you the mind of Christ. Why is that important? Well, if I have a pure heart, I can love God with all my heart. If I, if I have the mind of Christ, I can love God with all my... Bible tells me that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit came into me and quickened my spirit, made my spirit alive within me. I now have a new, a brand new alive spirit, meaning I can love God with all my spirit. Bible even tells me, Paul says this, he says that when, he said that when he was weak, he was actually strong. Which means I can love God with all my strength, right? Because the strength isn't from me, the strength is from, from God. And so the, the point of all of this is that the law demands you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Once you come to Christ and are saved, you can start to do that. You can actually love your enemy, your neighbor, as yourself. 
as, as you are empowered by Christ to do just that. Two final observations here. Look at this verse. Romans 5, 8, and 9, speaking of Jesus and us, right? But God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, excuse me, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Notice back there, right? For if while we were the enemies, we were reconciled to God, right there at the top. Question for you. This, uh, this Jew, been brought to the inn by the Samaritan, wakes up in two weeks, and the Samaritan comes back to that inn, and the innkeeper says, here's the guy that saved your life. Do you think the Jew and Samaritan are going to be enemies anymore? Probably not. I mean, maybe. They hated each other, but I doubt it. And the reality is we were the enemies of God and Christ came down and reconciled us, made peace between us and God through his death. And the good Samaritan made peace for us. And so the reality is we are no longer the enemies of God. I hope I got stuck in there. We're no longer the enemies of God. How awesome, how awesome, how awesome is that? And I love what he says in there. More than that, we also rejoice in God. So we're like, like we are saved and we are reconciled. And more than that, we just rejoice in the fact that Christ is now our Savior. And finally, one last, one last observation here. If Jesus is the Good Samaritan, you know what that makes us? Well, maybe that makes us the end. Maybe our church is the end where the Good Samaritan takes all those people that are beaten up and wounded and need to find Christ. And we reach out and we tend to them with the love of Christ. Jesus did tell this man, go and do likewise. Like, go and love your neighbor. And maybe you're not the Good Samaritan, but maybe the Good Samaritan will bring you the people that you can love. He'll bring those people into your life. You can be the innkeeper. You can tend to those people. I'll leave you with this final little story here that I thought was fascinating. I'll run through this. What did we learn today? The lawyer needed the gospel, not the law. We learned that our neighbor is our greatest enemy. We learned that Jesus is the good Samaritan. We aren't. We, we learned that we are the ones who were left half dead by the side of the road. We learned that Jesus came to us and sacrificed for us all to save us. We learned what the law demands, the gospel produces. We learned that we are no longer the enemies of God and that the church is to care for the wounded in this world. I thought this was fascinating. Phil Cook and Jonathan Bach write that in 1997, Stan Dobbs left a career in the computer industry and packed up for seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. While also working on staff at a church, he recognized the incredible numbers of singles and young couples living in apartments who reported feeling lonely and unable to connect with other people. It's one of the great ironies of our culture. Multiple families packaged, uh, packed into a single building who don't know or rarely come in contact with each other. 50% of the population of Dallas lives in apartments, Dobbs says, and yet, the, and yet the existing outreach strategies have been terribly ineffective in reaching apartment residents. Stan had an unusual idea. In 2000, he launched an organization called Apartment Life in downtown Fort Worth with the goal of penetrating 
the walls of massive apartment complexes with the message of the gospel. He created a concept he called community activities and residential services, CARES teams. A team consists of either a married couple or two singles of the same gender. And they are given a free apartment for working 80 hours per month to assist the apartment complex management in building community and serving residents. Stan's job is to sell the apartment owner on the idea that giving a free apartment to a Christian couple will be good for his or her bottom line. His goal is to convince the owner that in exchange for free rent, the couple's job is to create a better and more vibrant sense of community within the complex. To accomplish that, they become what some might call chaplains for the residents. They visit the sick, hold community events, set up basketball leagues, and throw pool parties, all designed to bring people together. And it's worked. To date, there are more than 100 of these teams working to bring a stronger sense of community to people who would otherwise never know their next-door neighbor. And since these team members are Christian couples, spiritual conversations naturally happen. Even though apartment life is driven by a Christian commitment, the apartment owners couldn't be more thrilled. What a great story. You see, before we can know our neighbor, we have to know who our neighbor is. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are the good Samaritan. Thank you that you have tended to my wounds and tended to my needs. That you have empowered me to go out and tend to the needs of others. Thank you, Lord, that you have produced through yourself and through the gospel what the law could never produce in me. What the law demanded but could never produce, you have done that in my life. You do that in all of our lives. Open our eyes this week so we can see the people around us that are hurting so that we can reach out. May our doors of our church be opened. May you send us those, Lord, that just have spiritual questions that are just seeking, that are just searching, that have been beaten up by this world. And when they come through the doors, may we put an arm around them and welcome them in. And may we point them to the Good Samaritan. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen.